Well, we're obviously not proceeding on Oxford time this morning because there is a myth in this university that everything starts five minutes late and we're going to start on time because I'm delighted to see so many of you here to, I think, participate in what is an interesting and at times very controversial subject. I'm Fiona Caldicott and I stood down as Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Personnel and Equality two years ago now and was succeeded by Sally Mapstone, who's now Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Education. Um, and then we're very pleased to welcome Hugh Dent here, who um, has got quite a lengthy title, so I'm going to read it, if I may, Hugh. Diversity and Human Rights Officer in the National Policing Improvement Agency. Thank you. So thank you for coming. I apologise for the title, but I was sort of handed it, really. Yes. <laughs> and this is Pete Quinn, who's Head of Disability Services for... Uh, students and staff, I think, so he's going to talk about that. I thought I would just start with one or two general remarks about the university. You've seen in the introduction that the question is raised about how the Equality Act and its successor and the various strands of equality might affect the university, and of course they do affect all of us in different ways in our lives, but certainly in uh, student uh, facilities and with academic staff, there are particular issues which may come out in our discussion, and if not, we may raise them or you may raise them. Um, but I just wanted to make one or two points from my own experience of being in that Pro Vice Chancellorship for four years. I think it's become very clear that for an institution as complex as the University of Oxford to make progress on these issues, there has to be authority and support from the very top of the institution. And the fact that we've had vice chancellors who have been prepared to say that they, this has a priority and indeed to create the pro-vice chancellorship that has the word equality in its set of responsibilities, I think demonstrates that we've been fortunate enough in Oxford to have that commitment, which has made a difference to those of us who've tried to work on equality issues in the institution. Another particular issue, I think, for universities is the tension that arises between our deep commitment to freedom of speech and some of the issues that are raised when uh, issues, events occur, where freedom of speech appears to be in jeopardy. And there's a very difficult judgment at times about when, for instance, students, perhaps in the Oxford Union, which is not part of the university, invite speakers who are very controversial and there's a concern in the institution about student and staff safety. And so one of the things we've had to think about a lot is our responsibilities in relation to promoting freedom of speech, allowing people to express what may be controversial, even unpopular ideas, but times when that may raise issues that um, veer into concern about the uh, safety of, of the institution at large. And the other general issue I wanted to refer to, and other speakers may pick it up, is that I think one of the things that's been of most concern in universities in recent years is the idea that they're somehow, uh, in the media's expression, hotbeds of radicalisation. Our experience is that this is untrue. Um, there are people who have committed terrorist acts who have been to university. Well, a lot of people have been to university. And the connection that's been made between certain people who are prepared to use violence in pursuit of their aims and the fact that they've been students is one that many of us found extremely difficult, particularly when it seemed to extend into asking academic colleagues to somehow police the behaviour of their students. I mean, that is deeply antithetical to the philosophy of a university such as this. And I think it's something about which we have agonised, is the right word. And I think it's fair to say that sometimes the police have not found us quite as cooperative on that policing as they would have liked us to be. Some of you know that I chaired the inquiry for University College London last year into the time that... Omar Abdul Mutalab was a student there, and he, of course, went on to allegedly 
tried to blow up a bomber, uh, a plane which was going into Detroit airport. That trial has not yet occurred. But there was no evidence at all in that inquiry that that young man showed any uh, tendency towards radicalisation or violent behaviour whatsoever. And one of the conclusions we came to was that our student welfare systems in universities are extremely important in picking up possible changes in behaviour of students, which might be a clue that something's happening to them that we would wish to give them support and try and understand. So it gets us into some very complex issues in terms of individual responsibility, the responsibility of, of uh, academics for their students, and the wider institution. And I just wanted to put that before you because it won't necessarily come up in the discussion, but I think that's an extreme end of the sorts of things that face us on campuses. So with those general remarks, some of which you may wish to come back to, I'm going to ask Pete to talk to us about the issue of disability, um, which is one of those things which I think has been imposed on university for good reasons, but without anyone thinking that we might need extra resources in order to meet the needs of our disabled students and staff. And that's been a very big concern in Oxford because the legislation has encouraged people with disability to come. We're delighted about that, but we've had to, within existing resources, find ways of supporting them, and some of them do need a lot of support to succeed on their courses. So, Pete, thank you. Thank you, and good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Oxford. Um, I'm just going to take you through a short presentation I've done about disability at the University of Oxford. It's very specific to the university, but it does fit the agenda that we've got this morning about equality. And, and I think it's fair to say that disability is probably the only protected characteristic, as all these strands are now defined, that you may wake up with tomorrow morning. Um, so it, it could affect us all. And um, um, I'm going to show you some imagery which is, is very much about wheelchairs and physical disability, but um, I'll go into the actual representative figures of students and, and uh, staff at the university as well. So the perception of Oxford is, um, you know, of this, this grand place with, um, you know, beautiful buildings. And there is a perception sometimes that they're inaccessible. And, that, um, you know, that this is a beautiful example of an Oxford building. And straight away, you've just got stairs up to the front door and people think, okay, well, that's not for me. I mean, we already struggle sometimes to encourage people to apply to Oxford. Um, there's this idea of complexity about the place, about you know being baffled by, by things. And uh, this is not an Oxford diagram, but um, I think it's a baffling diagram and it's the sort of thing that people you know, are associated with. Apparently, it's about stability in Afghanistan. And I think that's, um, that's probably very telling. Um, the, the cobbled streets, the bikes lying everywhere, people with visual impairment may trip over and, and those sort of things. Beautiful imagery, but th there's this perception of, of inaccessibility. And for students coming here, um, this idea that uh, you're just going to be swamped in, in, in books and knowledge, and, um, and that's, a, that's an exciting thing. I mean, that is, is what we want people to be. You know, they, we want them to be immersed in, in education, but um, for people with... Um, specific learning difficulties like dyslexia and dyspraxia who have the, the, the intellectual capacity to study here, um, that, that may be a daunting prospect. So we're talking about um, disability in, in terms of the, um, how it fits into the equality picture and the triennial review of the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission is a very interesting um, document and it, it goes into all the different um, protected characteristics. Um, for disability in particular, it picked up, uh, these are a few headlines, um, seven in ten permanent exclusions from school in England um, are, are people with special educational needs. Now that people with autism, dyslexia, all, all sorts of different disabilities would, would fall into that bracket. So we, we've got challenge there in terms of attracting those, those groups here if they're not really getting through school to some extent. This is slightly contradictory as well in the report. It says a growing number of, uh, of disabled students are going to university, but they're not achieving their potential. But shortly I'll just show you what they also say. But, um, and they also say that disabled students are less likely to be attending a Russell Group University than non-disabled students, uh, with dyslexic students being the lowest number, uh, the lowest percentage are likely to attend. 
But then we learned that students with disabilities are as likely to receive uh, a first-class honours or a 2-1 degree, particularly that the, the groups of those um, students with, who are blind or partially sighted, um, who have mental health difficulties, and those with specific learning difficulties. That's the term that covers dyslexia, dyspraxia, and <coughs> attention deficit, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorders, um, which are the most commonly represented uh, groups of students. Now, that's a, a, a snapshot from um, academic year 2009-10 of, of the, the, the groupings of students at Oxford. So you can see that the, the majority of students are dyslexic. They have a, 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 an unexpected difficulty in, in um, reading printed um, literature with, with great verbal ability but, but difficulty in, in, in um, processing information. And then you'll see that the figures for other groups. Interestingly, uh, the wheelchair using or mobility impaired students very few are full-time wheelchair users, but still that's the image that we have when we, we talk about disability quite often. And um, you know, many, many areas of the country still have this ramp mentality, you know, disability, ramp to the front door, everything is, is okay once we've achieved that. But we, we know that that's not true. And um, particularly at Oxford, I'm, I'll shortly tell you what we are doing uh, apart from that. Um, and these are known students. These are students who've told the university in confidential uh, setting about a disability. So um, I draw your attention to um, 10 Asperger's syndrome, which is a growing group of students, um, high functioning autism. And, and um, Dame Fiona mentioned that, you know, challenging students. The, the, the social barrier there is, is a challenge. And as many of you know, the courses here, there is a huge social dimension to it, the tutorial, um, college um, life, you know, and, and our aim in, in the Disability Advisory Service and throughout the university is to encourage um, full participation of all students, which includes the personal and social element, which often suffers if, if students are having to spend more time than their peers on, on learning. Um, you'll notice a, um, a high number of mental health difficulties, potentially that, that doubled recently, and it wasn't that we suddenly had an increasing number of, of students with enduring mental health difficulties, but a new system that we put in place to, for students to disclose bore fruit straight away. So, we, so people felt more confident in disclosing mental health difficulties. And then if we look at staff numbers, um, you know, there's a, about a 4% disclosure rate, which is about what, what you would expect. You would want it to be higher, but, but that's what you expect. And it's very similar to other large organisations locally. Um, interestingly, and, and as you find in, in many instances, decline to specify is, um, is quite a high figure and that has been increasing and when we're asking for this equality information it's, it's, you know, it's always with the caveat that you don't have to tell us um, you know, and we're interested to, uh, to improve things, not to find you out. Okay, so these are what we're, some of the examples of what us as a university are doing about disability and I haven't gone into the massive amount of research and scholarship that's going on in these areas which are represented across the university and if, you know, in many newspapers on a daily basis um, um, progress on those kind of areas have been reported. Um, but the, we have core teams in the university, the Disability Advisory Service which is a my service which provides study support to students with a whole range of areas. I'll, I'll go into more detail about that shortly. The Equality and Diversity Unit which um, is, is the area where making sure that we're meeting our duties um, with all the protected characteristics, giving advice, helping develop policies and, and who are interpreting what um, our student and staff uh, groups are saying and trying to make sure that, that um, we've created an academic community that everyone feels comfortable in. Um, within the Bodleian Library Service we have something which we call ARAQ um, and it's the Assistive Resources Acquisition and Creation Unit it was much more understandable when it was called Resources for the Blind, but um, as, 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 as the, the needs of students have changed, so has the unit. And whereas they used to be solely a recording service, they now scan information, they produce things in Braille, they produce things in alternative formats, because a lot of technology has come about that is very beneficial to students. We work um, within our career service on particular projects. They work very closely with... Um, Many organisations, both in the city and in the third sector, um, are for our students with disabilities to go in, particularly students with Asperger's, who are getting more and more um, successful in going into the workplace. And many um, 
banks in particular are, are, are working with the university to attract students on the autistic spectrum. Um, we try and work with placements um, in terms of getting students in so that they can experience work so that they don't get to the end of their degree and, and find that they have nothing and that's going to be increasingly more important. But another key thing is we, the careers team and, and my team work with um, students on guidance of disclosure, when to tell a, a, an organisation you have a disability because unfortunately there is still um, evidence of stigma. We have a network of disability contacts throughout the collegiate university both in colleges and departments and also we've been doing an awful lot of work as an institution. We've got a number of working parties that have taken place and are taking place um, particularly on, on issues relating to disabled students, staff with disabilities, the um, particularly largest group, students with dyslexia and dyspraxia, we've been looking at making sure that what we're doing as an institution is appropriate both at an academic level and meeting the needs of students. And um, a number of international students with disabilities um, are studying here. The UK's um, funding for disabled students is very generous. It's the most generous in the world, I, I expect, from a, from a, from a government. Um, and we've created a parity of support now for international students too. We have mentoring schemes, which I'll go into in, in more detail shortly, but we have schemes where applicants with particular disabilities contact us and we put them in touch with current students so that they can hear about their real experiences of studying here, the challenges, but also the benefits. <coughs> we um, piloted Disability Awareness Week, which happens in week six of Michaelmas term, a range of um, events, including um, uh, very prominent speakers, lunchtime seminars, uh, cake baking in, in, um, in aid of particular charities and um, dance projects. So it's a whole wealth of things, but it's to raise the positive image of, of disability. And on our wall of 100 faces, which if you, you haven't looked at, I would really commend to you. It's a great snapshot of the university. Um, we've got a number of disabled students talking about their experiences. And finally, I just put in Ox Mobile, which is a, an application device for mobile phones, which is a benefit to all our students. But one of the features on it is you can look up where the nearest library book is to you. So if you've got fatigue conditions, you can navigate yourself to the nearest library. Um, and if you've got a, a, a mobility difficulty and you're going to an unfamiliar part of the library, it tells you um, accessible routes for that. Okay, and, and my team delivers some specialist services for students, um, along with colleagues throughout the university. And these are very highly specialist services to work on a one-to-one -one basis with students with Asperger's, uh, severe and enduring mental health difficulties and students with chronic conditions which uh, are on the increase and, and we're very pleased about that but they do bring challenges um, to our system and, and we need to work to make reasonable adjustment whilst maintaining the, the, um, the absolute academic standards of the university and we also have a network of study skills tutors who work with our, our largest group of students who have um, specific learning difficulties that's not extra tuition, academic tuition, but it's teaching strategies and skills to cope with time management, exam time, those, those sort of skills. So the first image I showed you today was of the Radcliffe camera. Now, the steps going up to it, have, uh, and, and this is a kind of metaphor. If you go through these doors now, you'll notice several things. It, it doesn't look any different from probably when you were here, except that the courtyard is now completely level, and that's going back to to its original design. So the school's quad in the Bodleian Library is completely level, so you don't have any issues with steps. But also, now if you want to get into the Radcliffe camera, you can. Um, you don't need to go up the front steps. You go into the corner of the, um, the, the proscolium, and there is a lift that takes you down um, through um, what is now called the Gladstone Link into the underground bookstore, which is, is just here. Um, what this diagram doesn't show, however, is there is a further link across and you can access through a lift up into the Radcliffe um, camera. And I think that's just an excellent metaphor for what we are doing at Oxford, is that it's not entirely obvious from the outside to look at us to say, well, what has changed? Where are the, the, uh, the opportunities for students with disabilities? But I think that's, that's just one of the very physical examples of, of the work we've done here. And we've had to do it sensitively because it's a World Heritage site and we've had to do it carefully, you know, to not disrupt readers and, and, and um, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are invested in this and, and I think we've done it very well. Um, and that's my contact details if anyone would like to ask anything further on that. And I would commend you to look at our website as well with a number of student videos.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What I'm going to do is frustrate you a bit, I think, and ask you to hold on to your questions or points after each speaker till we've heard all the presentations, because I think that otherwise we may get drawn into fascinating discussion um, and not he hear the presentations that have been prepared for you. So I'm going to ask Sally now, who's going to talk about, I think, more gender issues. Gender, the, yes, that's right. Thank you. Um, right, good morning, everybody. Um, as Fiona said, my name is Sally Matstone. Um, when speaking about gender issues, um, I think it's instructive, um, as well as quite important, to, to say where you're coming from. Um, so first of all, I'm a, I'm a woman. Um, secondly, um, I speak as the, the only present woman pro-vice-chancellor amongst the five, as we're called, functional pro-vice-chancellors. The other pro-vice-chancellors are ceremonial, and we're, we're kept in our place by being referred to as, as functional. Um, and I'm pro-vice-chancellor for education. I was previously pro-vice-chancellor for personnel and equality. I'm a fellow of St. Hilda's College, um, which until 2008 was Oxford's last women's college, and I've, I've been there since 1984. Um, I think when you're talking about gender issues, um, generation also makes quite a bit of a difference. Um, I'm in my, my 50s, and uh, I'll explain why I think this is relevant. I'll give you an example um, very recently in, in my experience. Um, earlier this week, I was at a women and leadership conference, which was being held at Brooks University, and there's at least one, one person in the audience here. There may be others who, who was also there. And on the first day, we were having a session um, discussing the low numbers of women in FTSE 100 companies um, with comparison um, to Norway, where there's a gender quota law that there should be 40% of board seats in every publicly trading company held by women. Um, and we were, at the beginning of the session, we were asked to, to think about the situation in Britain and we were asked, there was a show of hands as to whether it was thought that there should be a quota um, in Britain as well. And I said yes to that, as did, I noticed, surprisingly, uh, not surprisingly, unsurprisingly, a fair number of other women of my generation, whereas it was, it was notable that the younger generation didn't put their hands up, and a couple of us discussed this informally later. Um, and younger people, particularly younger women present, were tending to take the view on this question of quota of no, give it time, attitudes may, may change. Um, our generation was saying no, they've all had enough time, um, change has been slow. Um, I think it's striking, actually, that if you note that at present, about 12.5% of women on FTSE 100 company boards, um, uh, about 12.5% of the people on FTSE 100 boards are, are women. Um, in, 99, in 1999, it was 9%. So progress has not been particularly great, and you know, hence the, 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 the feeling, I think, um, of the need for a quota. Um, the other thing that was particularly striking in this particular session was that um, research showed that if you go beneath company boards and go down to, as it were, executive committees, as it were, the next level down um, in management, there are quantities of women around. There are a lot of women who have the potential to get through that pipeline and get onto boards, but for whatever reason, that isn't happening. So it's not, you know, if you were to establish a quota, it's not as if you'd hear the tired old argument, oh, there aren't the women to do it. There are potentially there. They're just not getting their way through. Um, now, I, I thought about this quite a lot afterwards because I thought, well, it's, you know, it's okay to say this when, as it were, it's not quite your world that you're talking about. So I might have my view on FTSE 100 companies and the representation of women. But what about if you turn that back to academia and said, well, you know, let's see if we can move the, the needle a bit by a quota system there. Um, and that's something that, that I think we might want to, to, to think a bit about. Um, it's, it's relatively easy to, 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 to transfer the paradigm that I've talked about to other walks of life. For instance, um, one of the other things that we heard at this conference, we had a very interesting session on women and law. Um, and I was very struck by the fact that 86% 
of equity partners in UK law firms are men. And again, this is striking given the number of women who go into the law and the number of women there are, as it were, knocking around at the middle levels. Um, and it does seem to be the case, I think, that, as it were, unspoken gender stereotyping um, and business models and practices that favour men rather than women um, have a role to play in creating these imbalances. So you might say, well, what about academia? Um, one might think, on the face of it, that the, the academic lifestyle, as it were, could, could um, even out that kind of disadvantage. Well, um, sadly, that's not the case. And the headline statistics um, aren't good for the sector, and they're worse for Oxford. 18.7% um, of professors in higher education institutions in the UK are women. Um, in Oxford, and here we're talking about statutory professorships, not the title of professor, which you can have in Oxford, but which, which can be something rather different. In Oxford, it's about 9%, so it's about half the national um, statistic. 47, uh, nearly 48% of lecturers in higher education institutions are women. In Oxford, it's just over 27%. Uh, it won't surprise you to hear that the situation in the science divisions is the worst. Um, in 2009, the Mathematical, Physical and Life Sciences Division had just two female professors. Um, in the same year, there were nearly 300 uh, male lecturers in MPLS and under 50 women. Um, and I think it's important also to realize here that um, what is going on here is not just that there are fewer women in the field to apply for these posts, as is often said. Um, in, in the most extreme circumstances, there have been instances where posts have been advertised in the sciences in Oxford which have attracted no female candidates. So I think as, a, as an institution, we do have to, to ask ourselves questions about what's going on here. And there's another aspect to this, which is, of course, that, that women then are less visible, if you like, where it matters. Um, and this is a subject in which I've taken a great deal of interest because I think the whole question of leadership roles in this university is, is very important from the gender perspective. And it is a case where significant interventions, and here I'm going to start speaking more positively uh, for a bit than I have been, can make a real difference. Um, and the, the instance I want to, to give you here is an example of a really relevant intervention by our present um, Vice-Chancellor, Andrew Hamilton. Um, before he came to the university, he made a couple, before, after he'd got the job, but before he joined as VC, he made a few visits to the university, going around the divisions and meeting people. And he went to a meeting of the Social Sciences Division, where all the heads of department were present. Uh, there were 14 um, departments in Social Sciences. And he sat there with the head of division and um, the heads of departments in a room in which there were no women present. And uh, he just looked around and said, wow, no, what, what's the reason for this? This is social sciences, there aren't any female heads of department. Um, now, let me tell you, that was a couple of years ago. Um, as we start the next, this coming academic year, um, there will be six female heads of department in social sciences. And I think there is a connection, if you like, between those, those two events. Social sciences have had a look at themselves and they thought, what are we doing? Uh, what are our processes for getting people to become heads of departments? So interventions like that can actually be quite significant. Um, I think there's also a college element to this too. Uh, as we start the new academic year, um, seven out of our 38 colleges are headed by women. Um, the number of female heads of house has in fact gone down slightly in recent years rather than um, uh, going up. Now, this again is significant because I think it affects perceptions of, of colleges and, and it's particularly important for our student members, I think, in terms of how they can perceive the world they inhabit. Um, colleges, as you will know, have been mixed in Oxford since 1974. But there are still big disparities between them in the balance of, of male and female fellows. 
it's a striking phenomenon that the, the majority of the former women's colleges, which have gone mixed, um, Lady Margaret Hall, St Anne's, St Hugh's, Somerville, and I'm excluding St Hilda's at the moment because um, it's so recent, have moved far more swiftly to relatively equal proportions of men and women in their fellowship than have the former men's colleges. My own former undergraduate college, Wadham, was one of the first colleges to go mixed in 1974. I went up in 1975. This is quite a long time ago. Um, it still has under 10 women teaching fellows on its sizable governing body. At Brasenose College, which went mixed in the same year, the number is even smaller. Now, there may be particular historical reasons for this, or there may not. But what this kind of demographic does is to crucially, of course, reduce the availability of female, male, uh, female role models. And my own experience at St Hilda's has taught me that that can be vital to female achievement and development. Um, I've been a tutor in English at St Hilda's um, since 1984, and there have been a couple of years where St Hilda's has actually got the best English, before, uh, English results in finals of any college in the university, and we put that very much down to the kind of knock-on effect of women seeing other women do very well and feeling that they can do so themselves. Now, it is possible to go on like this, but I, I want to stop at this point and just move on to talking about some of the, the positive initiatives that we've been taking to try to address these questions um, of imbalance um, and, and to start to, to if you like, um, restore that imbalance. Um, and I would also want to say that I would want to recognize that there are some terrific women in the university across the divisions, the colleges, and the departments, and, of course, amongst our student body, about which I'm saying less because I'm concentrating particularly on, on staff and talking to you. Um, but there aren't enough of them. Um, I'm happy to say more about the student body in questions, if necessary. Uh, so when I started... Um, as Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Personnel and Equality, I wanted to build on the initiatives which had been commenced under Dame Fiona when she was in that role and to set up some others. And I'm just going to give a couple of examples. Um, I'm going to start by talking about the sciences. And the, the first um, initiative that is important here is one that I imagine some people will know about, which is the Athena Swan initiative. And the university is an active and committed member of the Athena Swan scheme. Um, and last year, we achieved two significant milestones in this connection. Um, the Athena Swan scheme is a recognition scheme for UK universities and their science, engineering and technology departments. To qualify for an award from the scheme, universities have to demonstrate a range of commitments to changing um, their culture, to promoting women in science in departments and across the university generally. We gained an overall bronze recognition award from the scheme in 2006, and this was renewed last year. And this was because we were able to demonstrate a number of things about the university's culture generally, including our gender equality scheme and our childcare provision, which is, I, I think, probably the best in the, in the UK higher education sector, and our commitment to improving the situation of women in the university and the active work of, of our departments. And by way of illustration of that, at the same time as we got the Bronze Award, the Department of Zoology um, submitted for and got a Silver Award on the basis of its um, innovative and committed approach to women's advancement um, and its um, inclusive and accessible departmental culture, which includes promotion of flexible working arrangements, for example. And this has had a good knock-on effect. Other departments are now involved. Physics, in particular, is an active exponent of the Project Juno scheme, which is a recognition scheme rather similar to Athena Swan. Um, and we know there are other departments that are getting involved. Now, the fact that we are so involved already is turning out to be crucial. And I'm now going to re refer to uh, a very decisive intervention which has recently been made and, and which in kind of women's circles isn't just being referred to as the letter. If you say to people, have you seen the letter? They, they say, yes, isn't it extraordinary? So um, for those of you who don't know about what the letter is, let me share this with you. Um, 
This was a letter that was written um, to, medical uh, to the Medical Schools Council at the end of July by um, the, the government's chief medical officer, Professor Dame Sally Davies. And she outlined in it her intention that all medical schools who wish to apply for National Institute of Health Research biomedical research centers and units funding going forward need to have achieved an Athena Swan Charter for Women in Sciences Silver Award. And this effectively gives universities and uh, medical schools four years until the next round to get up to, to speed. Um, it's a very forthright letter. Um, Athena has commented on this to, that, that, to their knowledge, the Chief Medical Officer's statement marks the first time that criteria for major funding, and for this university, a lot of funding would be at stake, that criteria for major funding have been explicitly linked to gender equality. So this is a really, it's a significant step, um, and it's a demanding one for many universities. It would be fair to say, I think, that there's been a, a certain amount of panic as a result of this letter. Um, it is a challenge for us, too. I think it's also fair to say that there is being a certain amount of, of pushback. Um, I think it's going to be impossible for every department to get a, a, a silver award in that time. But the important point is that the point has been made and that departments know that they have actually got to pay attention to this and think about it. Um, our vice chancellor is leading on the top, uh, from the top on planning discussions for this. And that's what Athena expects. So this is a very significant intervention. When we last got our bronze award, um, I wrote in wrote the introduction to um, our submission. And to give you an example of what Athena is like, and I, would, I think this is great, they wrote back in the feedback and said, well, we thought, it was, we thought it was very good, very nice that the pro vice chancellor wrote the introduction, but really it should have been written by the vice chancellor. So, you know, they, they want, they want the, as it were, the authoritative interventions to come from on high. Now, I just want to mention a couple of other things that, that, that we've been doing. Um, many people will already have heard of the Springboard Programme, and this is a development plan for women which was originally started in the BBC and has transferred to other institutions since. And we've had this for several years in the university, both for researchers um, and for graduate students. We've also rolled it out for undergraduates quite recently because we think it's very valuable for them and important that colleges get buy-in. Um, but we've also been looking at the question of mentoring for women, um, particularly women who are at that midpoint level that I've talked about already a couple of times, um, doing very well in their careers, but wondering quite where to go next. Um, there is quite a lot of evidence that women don't always achieve to their full potential if they're uncertain of the structures in which they're working. And this university, as Pete demonstrated, um, is not always that easy to grasp from the point of view of structures. So what we've been piloting this year is a mentoring scheme for women called the Ad Feminine, Mentor Ad Feminine Mentoring Scheme, which is aimed at women at the middle point of their careers, both in administration and in academia, in which they receive high-level mentoring from members of the university, male and women, uh, male and female, on a one-to-one -one basis or sometimes on a collective basis, if, if that's what they um, wish for. Um, and again, the vice-chancellor is leading from the top on this. He's acting as a mentor in the scheme. Um, so that brings me to my, my final point. Um, the whole question of quotas and positive discrimination. Now, you will know that positive discrimination um, of the sort that is possible, uh, for instance, in some uh, US universities as far as appointments is concerned, isn't permitted in the UK. However, the new Equality Act does institutionalize the concept of the, the tiebreaker, which, and this part of the act was enacted in April of this year. And essentially how, that, how this works is that if you have two equally qualified candidates for a post, you can appoint the woman or indeed a disabled person or someone from an ethnic minority on the grounds that they are underrepresented. So it's a, it's a voluntary positive action in recruitment and promotion processes. This doesn't mean quotas. Um, and I think this is a very interesting question as to what the results of this actually will be. Um, when it first came in, it was reported um, by the Daily Mail as um, under the headline, 
equality law could bar white men from jobs, um, which kind of <laughs> shows you possibly why you need this, this, this kind of, of intervention. Um, we'll, we'll be keeping um, an eye on this in the university to, to see actually the extent to which it is being used. But again, this is, if you like, a, a, a very small intervention. It certainly isn't a quota, but it's an example, if you like, of positive action of a sort that I, as I've said, I think we need to keep an eye on to see whether, in fact, we need to be lobbying for more than that in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sally. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I, <laughs> yes, sorry, good afternoon. Um, um, I, time flies when you're enjoying yourself. I, perhaps I should start by um, talking a, a short period about my experience, because I think that is important. Um, as you'll see, I'm a man. I am also uh, 64 and a beneficiary of the abolition of the default retirement age on the 1st of October. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about age discrimination and age equality, um, but as has been said, the main emphasis will, will be on race equality issues. Um, I have worked on race equality issues um, since 1975. Uh, I was a civil servant in the Ministry of Defence and the Northern Ireland Office before that. Um, in 1975, I started working in the Race Relations Board, which was um, uh, responsible for um, investigating complaints of racial discrimination and either taking them to court uh, if um, conciliation failed or conciliating them. Um, that was wound up in 1977, and its functions were transferred to the Commission for Racial Equality, where I worked until 1996. Um, I should say that that a rather genteel law enforcement bit of the race equality business was um, uh, complemented by um, activities which really involved promoting race equality, uh, encouraging organisations to adopt equality policies, and also um, helping develop um, local organisations to this end by the Community Relations Commission. Um, those functions, the Community Relations Commission's function, were <coughs> taken over to the um, uh, into the Commission for Racial Equality. And the work I did in the CRE was um, very largely um, concerned with um, formal investigations uh, into um, major public employers. The actually became defunct shortly before the... Became, became I'm sorry? I think it's on, I think they are on. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll try and speak more loudly then. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about this. Um, uh, I, I've worked on um, formal investigations into major public and private sector employers, uh, and I've also been involved in um, bringing cases to tribunal, um, usually cases of um, instructions or pressure to discriminate rather than an actual case where somebody, person A, has been discriminated against by person B, uh, although I have been involved in that. And I've also been involved in, in working with employers uh, on a kind of voluntary basis on their side to uh, promote uh, or to adopt policies which will um, promote and enhance equality. Um, since uh, 1996, I've been working for, um, in succession, the National, National Police Training, the Central Police Training and Development Authority, otherwise known as Centrex for understandable reasons, and now the National Policing Improvement Agency. And my work there has been generally advisory, um, reviewing um, products uh, which are um, training programs, um, examinations for selection, uh, and examinations assessment centres for selection to join the police service and, and promotion within it, and um, a, a very wide range of training and, and um, I suppose education or management education programs which NPIA runs. Um, that's, I suppose, me at probably excessive length. Um, race equality um, really has been um, fostered by legislation since a sort of test vehicle, the 1965 Race Relations Act. There was then the 1968 Race Relations Act, which was administered by the Race Relations Board. And um, the 1976 one, which was administered by the Commission for Racial Equality, and was a much more powerful and wide-ranging piece of legislation. Um, I think the, the sort of focus on the 
kind of law enforcement and advisory work that I've done um, needs to be corrected by pointing out that that's not everything that's been done um, by the government to, to foster uh, and further race equality, or has been done by the local government or by the, the, um, the, 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 the voluntary sector. Um, I think it, we would not, there have been important successes, but I think if it had just depended on um, uh, the use of the law, um, it, it's, it would, would simply not have had the successes had. There have been sort of broader um, social developments and social movements which have um, <coughs> moved us forward from the position where we were. Um, uh, I mean, when I started working in the RRB, there was not a single um, ethnic minority or visible ethnic minority that would be MP. Um, from what I could uh, gather from looking at the list on um, uh, Wikipedia um, when I was trying to prepare this note, there are now 26. Um, uh, it did occur to me, I didn't actually check the numbers, but there are actually a rather large number of peers, which means this is not an unmitigated triumph for the, um, for the, for the electoral process, but there you go. Um, but that, that, is a, that is an enormous change. Um, uh, in terms of the police service, um, for which I work, um, when I started working on uh, employment in the police service, there were the, the, the proportion of police officers, constable, attested constables who were members of ethnic minorities, was bobbing around the 2% mark. Um, it's now 48 um, um, When I tell you that the which you probably already know, that the best estimate for the ethnic population in Britain um, is probably between 8 and 10 percent. It was 8 percent in 2001. You will see that we have some way to go. Um, the staff turnover for police constables is about 5 or 6 percent a year, so um, it's one has to, I think, take that into account when you're, when you're setting up expectations. Um, I think an important point I would like to make is that um, if you're talking about protection against inequality, the current Equality Act, which is a, uh, as Sally said, a very um, powerful piece of legislation with a lot of good in it. It's, it's not the sole protection. There is protection under the Human Rights Act. Article 14 of, of the European Convention on Human Rights provides extreme, extremely wide-ranging protection. Or rather, it's, it, it provides protection for a very wide range of groups. Um, uh, it, it, however, the protection it does give is only with regard to being discriminated against in the enjoyment of other convention rights. That's the other articles. Um, that's um, quite substantial protection, but not comprehensive. Uh, and but it's, it's, it's maybe bigger than it looks because there is an affirmative duty on um, uh, public, authority, uh, public authorities not just not to breach the Human Rights Act themselves, but to prevent breaches by others. Um, so uh, the, the, the reach of the Human Rights Act in that respect is, is I think, uh, wider than it appears, and probably not, not easily predicted. I mean, it, it bobs up in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I can remember a case, I cannot remember the title of it, but it was a case involving the right to, of, of uh, a bereaved um, former civil partner you know, to continue to um, enjoy the use of the flat that he had shared with his partner prior to his death. Um, I, this was not public sector housing. Um, but there were public sector interests, and, and uh, uh, that's an interesting example of how things can um, kind of develop. Um, I was going to say sort of almost um, slither, but, but that's 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 unfair and derogatory. Um, uh, lawyers can be difficult, but not that bad. Um, I. I'd like to talk very briefly um, about um, the issues of, of equality with regard to religion or belief, um, which I think is very knotty, um, uh, and also about um, the protection against discrimination on grounds of age. Um, 
there has been explicit protection against discrimination on grounds of religion or, religion or belief, and belief is in, interpreted very widely. Uh, there has to be some philosophical basis for it, um, and you're also protected against having um, no religion, um, uh, which was a gap in the in the first um, piece of protective legislation, which were the employment equality, open brackets, religion or belief, close brackets, regulations 2003. Um, they, they were basically introduced as, as a result of a, a, a European Union directive. Um, and they gave protection against um, discrimination on the grounds of original belief in employment. Um, the Equality Act 2006 um, closed the uh, loophole, if you like, which meant that there was no protection against not having a religion. Um, and it also uh, provided protection against being discriminated against in the provision of goods, facilities, and services, education, and uh, in the conduct of the functions of a public authority. Um, those are carried over into the um, Equality Act 2010, and there have been a number of cases where um, the right to respect for religion um, has been, it has come into conflict with the right to um, protection against discrimination on other protected characteristics. Um, there have been the registrar cases um, um, where registrars have had a, um, a religious objection to um, carrying out um, civil partnership ceremonies. Um, uh, there are also issues about the right to um, manifest religion by wearing a, um, uh, a crucifix. Um, uh, the before. The, before um, the introduction of the um, Employment Equality Age Regulations, before uh, that formal statutory protection, it was possible to provide protection um, to members of some religions uh, on the grounds that discriminating against them on the grounds of their religion um, was um, indirectly discriminatory against ethnic groups, was therefore contrary to the Race Relations Act. I have been involved in two cases uh, that, well, what, yeah, one case which involved um, uh, a, an instruction to a job centre that the, um, uh, the employer didn't want uh, any Muslims. He previously said he didn't want to recruit men. Uh, he he uh, had an assembly line business and he wanted people with dexterity. Um, we, we tried to argue uh, before the Employment Tribunal that uh, Muslims constituted an ethnic group. The tribunal didn't buy that argument, which would have meant that discriminating against Muslims would have been directly discriminatory under the Race Relations Act, but they did buy the argument that it was indirectly discriminatory. Um, uh, I suppose the point about that is that the legislation is um, fairly fluid and flexible, and um, there are um, uh, I don't know, cross-cuttings, you know, mutually um, reinforcing protection sometimes. Um, sometimes um, it, it doesn't work quite that way. Um, I think I'm now coming towards the end of my time, and, and uh, uh, I understand this is to be participative. Yes, so I think we perhaps should. Thank you very much indeed to you.